Welcome to the Esoteric Buffet Podcast, where we talk about all things strange and unusual. If it's geeky or freaky, then we'll talk about it. I'm your host, Joe Badon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can check us out online at esotericbuffet.blogspot.com. You can also check out my personal artwork at jobadon.blogspot.com. You can check out my music at thebandthatwouldndie.bandcamp.com. Okay, guys, on this episode, I will talk with writer Anthony Mathenia about his weird per, uh, spiritual experiences and also personal healings. We'll also talk about his upcoming novel, Happiness Next Exit, and a Kickstarter comic book project that he's a part of entitled Supreme Team. But first, Radio Esoterica. On this episode of Radio Esoterica, we'll be listening to weird music from around the world and across the universe. First up is the band Hanji... Hayaki with the song Fetum Pelu. Enjoy. Thank you. 
right, guys, y'all just listened to the song Queen of the Night, originally by Mozart, but this was performed by Florence Foster Jenkins. Next up, you'll be listening to the song An Offering by the band Unicorn Dream Attack. Enjoy.
Alright guys, y'all just heard the song Growing from the Blood by the band Oh No Lulu Philharmonia. Well that's it for Radio Esoterica. Next up is Weird News. This first bit of weird news comes from the Sunday Express UK. The title of the article says, Terrifying Rockness Monster Found Washed Up by British Lake. Pictures of the creepy discovery has sparked a viral frenzy as online commentators depend, uh, debate what lurks beneath Britain's lakes. The images have been shared more than 200 times in, de in a bid to clear up the peculiar find. Shocked walkers came across the carcass of a strange creature on the banks of Hollingworth Lake in Rockdale, Greater Manchester yesterday. This was a few weeks ago. Um... Some have named the creature the Rock Nest Monster, with the lake 400 miles from Loch Ness. The strange five-foot fish still had a mouth full of razor-sharp teeth. I'm going to stop right there and say five feet is nowhere near what Loch Ness looks like, how big Loch Ness, the Loch Ness Monster looks. So anyway, let me keep going. One walker by claims... He could fit his entire fist inside the animal. I'm going to stop right there. That's a little strange of a claim. Who knows what he was doing with that creature. Okay, let's keep going. Sales worker Johnny Beckett, age 32, said, I was on a romantic walk with my partner Susan, and I was stunned when I saw it. I thought it was a crocodile or some ancient creature, and I immediately took a photo of it. It looked huge, about five feet in length. A group of kids saw me taking the photo and looked horrified. Now, I looked at the pictures that were taken, and it definitely doesn't look photoshopped. Uh, uh, but it does look like somebody just kind of took an alligator snout and glued it onto a giant eel. It's weird. If you uh, Google rock nest, R-O-C-H, Rockness monster uh, washed up on British Lake, then you can check out the pictures and you know, look at it and tell me what you think. You can write to me at sunburnt, S O N B as in boy, U R N T 77 at gmail.com. That's sunburnt77 at gmail.com. Uh, let me know what you think. Tell me if you know what that weird creature is. Okay, next, next piece of news comes from the website brobible.com. The article reads this, Australian man has third ear, growing on arm, and we're getting even closer to the real X-Men. Now this article is, is pretty funny, so I'm just going to read it word for word. You ready? Let's do this. An Australian artist has a third ear on his arm. Stellark, though, isn't some magnificent mutant. It didn't happen by accident. He found a surgeon, crazy enough to put it there. 
Stellark began, that's the guy's name, he's an, he's an artist by the way, Stellark began his journey to Crazy Ear Art all the way back in 1996 when he arrived at the idea. It took another 10 years before he found a surgeon willing to implant a false ear into his forearm. I can't imagine why there weren't more surgeons lining up for the opportunity to do something that would make their colleagues roll their eyes and point and laugh. But apparently, it was just the one doctor. The extra ear was made from a scaffold of biocompatible material commonly used in plastic surgery. Stellark, which they only seem to say his last name here, so... Stellark originally thought of putting it behind one of his real ears, but chose to have it transplanted in the arm where the skin could stretch without requiring the prosthetic to be inflated. Stellark's own tissue and blood vessels developed around the ear scaffold within six months. He says the arm ear is now permanently a part of his body. Although, oh, excuse me. All right, so it's not a legitimate ear. This is the writer still talking. And it doesn't work, but do you see what's happening here? The writer says this. It's possible to add body parts. Eventually, we'll figure out how to add useful parts, like extra arms and legs. And then those people will adapt to life with extra limbs. And then that has the effect to this. And that has the effect to affect their offspring. Because giraffes didn't always have long necks. And in a couple decades, people are going to be mutations, and it's going to rule, and I'm going to, to the doctor to get lasers in my eyes. That's a quote from the writer. So, that's all for the news. Next up, we'll be talking with writer-novelist Anthony Mathenia about strange spiritual occurrences and personal healings. We'll also talk about his book, Happiness Next Exit and a Kickstarter comic book project that he's a part of entitled Supreme Team. Let's have a listen. All right, everybody. Well, I'd like to welcome Anthony Mathenia to the show. He is uh, one of the founders, owners, editors for the comic book company Stash Publishing. He's also a freelance writer, novelist, colorist, letterer. Is that right? that catch everything <laughs> yeah i hesitate to call myself a colorist and letterer but i i do have some credits there <laughs> nice nice well welcome to the show um a few weeks ago i had been putting out on facebook that um anybody with like uh, any sort of strange supernatural incidences in their lives or any sort of uh um alien encounters or ghost encounters or any sort of healings that they might have had that were miraculous, any sort of high strange sort of stuff. I wanted to talk to them and, and Anthony, you contacted me and you were like, man, I got all a, a shit ton of stuff that I could talk about. And so I was like, well, this would be great, man. Uh, um, the stuff you were, you were telling me about was perfect for the show. So, um, so let's get right into it. Um, you said you had quite a few things happen all through your life. Is that correct? That's been like supernatural, high, strange sort of things? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I've had like childhood incidences that were like weird. And when I look back at them now, I, I don't know if I want to necessarily, you know, call them supernatural or something. And maybe it was just childhood imagination sort of thing. Right. Um, yeah, just a couple of incidences, like standing on my porch once I was looking up at the sky at two lights and I was watching them thinking, um, they almost look like headlights, like flying Mm -hmm. towards me and... And I always thought it might be a plane or something. And then one of the lights like broke off and did this little aerial maneuver sort of deal. And it was just really, really bizarre. And then another kind of crazy thing that was happened when I was a kid was like I woke up at 2 in the morning outside my house. And I was like completely dressed like in my church clothes, uh, you know, like a little suit and stuff, <laughs> which I had had, you know, we'd went to uh, – our religious meetings earlier that night, but yeah, it was about two, two thirty in the morning. I'm knocking at the door of my house <laughs> and then, you know, let me in, let me in. And right. then, you know, my dad comes and opens, opens the door and like just looks at me in shock and I'm just out of it. I don't even think anything's the matter. You know, I don't know what's so late. I'm just like walk, you know, I just thought, Hey, I was right outside, walked in <laughs> went to bed. And then they're like, why, what were you doing outside? And it's like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and so that was weird and like church your church outfit too right <laughs> right exactly like i never went to bed <laughs> yeah <laughs> that sort of thing but you know it was just you know just weird childhood stuff i had some like sleep paralysis and all right. that kind of like weirdness that goes along with that sort of thing yeah. um sleep so paralysis yeah is such an interesting thing too you know because it's a horrific thing <laughs> it, it, it feels very sense. it feels demonic you know, it feels like you are being attacked by demons, and um, you know it's gone. It's not. It's not a new thing. It's happened. Uh, you know, it's been recorded uh, throughout the centuries, and it's yeah. only recently that it's kind of changed from a demonic experience to, you know, just some sort of weird biological thing. You know, but um. So, so I guess times, like the science of this is when you, when you go to sleep. Um, your body naturally paralyzes itself so right. you don't flail around and right. act out your dreams and kill your partner in the bed next to you. <laughs> uh, but, so, but when you experience this, this phenomenon, what happens is like it's this weird state between being awake and being asleep where your body's asleep, you can't move, right. your mind's there, but it's kind of hazy, it's kind of vortexy almost. Right. But the the thing about it, that it historically conjures up all this this demonic stuff is that there is often a feeling of a dark presence mm-hmm. outside the body or often sitting on the chest. Right. Um, the expression somebody looks haggard or haggridden actually comes from the idea that they've experienced sleep paralysis and in that culture, that, that framework, it was a hag that was right. like a witch that was on the chest. Right, um, I think they call it like the old hag syndrome, correct? Exactly. Right. Yeah, and you had um, the Japanese, they had spectral foxes, and in other cultures it was the demoness Lilith. Wow. So it's, it's, it's weird. It's cross-cultural, and it, it does always have that kind of dark connotation. So yeah. I don't know, even though we do have you know, an acceptable explanation of what it is um, and what happens to the body biologically – when you experience it, it's something that's really kind of 
crazy and difficult to get through. Oh, well, absolutely. I think the biggest thing is when people have the lucid dreaming aspect of it, when, when this happens, when they wake up and they're still dreaming. And so they do see visions. They do see, like, they actually see the demons. Um, I had an old pastor of mine who was telling me about how she woke up and had this sleep paralysis and a demon, she saw a demon sitting on her chest. And so many times you see that over and over, people seeing either demons or aliens um, or other creatures, shadow creatures and things like that. And, you know, it could be attributed easily to a lucid dreaming sort of situation. <clears throat> so it's a strange phenomenon, that's for sure. Yeah, I haven't experienced it. It was like, it was something that was with me probably up until my 38, when I was about age 30. Wow. And, but for like the last, you know, few years, I haven't experienced that. Now, does this coincide with, you said you, uh, you had some, uh, a he, uh, like a healing. Does that coincide with that? <clears throat> you had talked to me, uh, before we aired about heal about being healed. Does the sleep paralysis kind of coincide with that? Um, I hadn't linked it other than the time period where a lot of stuff was going on mm -hmm. in my life. I'd kind of grown up in this uh, high control religion. I will call it a cult. Um, sure. So I was in this religion, this kind of like framework, and I, when I was approaching age 30, I just started separating from it. And right. it was mainly because... I was sitting and um, at these religious meetings that we had to go to, and I didn't really want to listen to the same old thing that was they were talking about and preaching about. So I just would start reading the Bible because you could, you know, just have your Bible open, and if someone looked over at you, they wouldn't like judge you, right? Right. <laughs> oh no, no, he's just reading the Bible. No, I would just sit there and read it and read it, and I was, you know, seeing that what I had accepted as the truth really didn't reflect in a lot of ways with what I was reading. Wow. And I don't know, it was just a weird thing where I just kind of wanted to start believing in that, right. like really believing, you know, not just kind of this token belief. And when, when that started happening for me, you know, a lot of stuff started happening for me and it was confusing sometimes and weird and surreal and wonderful and i don't know <laughs> yeah you know it's interesting you you're you're saying that because i seem like we've gone down similar paths in a lot of ways because i uh i got saved uh i came to jesus probably in my 20s early early 20s and uh i mean i really dove head long into it and um it was probably six years ago. I'm 38 now, so it was probably like, you know, 12, 13 years after I got saved. I started, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to read any more books by other preachers. I'm not going, I'm not really even going to listen to sermons anymore at all. I'm just going to read my Bible. I'm just going to say, you know what, my time with God, I'm going to start reading the Bible and, and just see, you know, I just want to read it for myself and get my own my own interpretation out of it. And I started seeing all this stuff in the Bible that I'd never seen before. Although I I had read it over and over, 
but just saying, you know what, I'm going to unclutter my mind of all the religious thoughts. I'm going to unclutter my mind of all the cult um, ideals, because even mainline religion, there's so much uh, of the of the cult sort of facets, and even even like the most normal church uh, setting. Um, I all of a sudden saw, wow, we're not doing what Jesus said to do. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, I can totally see where you're coming from there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how deeply you want to go into it, but for me, I was, like, looking at just how much um, they kept talking about supporting the, the poor and the widows and the least among us yes. and, and this sort of thing. And, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm looking yes. around and saying, what? Yes. You know, that was we had this the... little maybe token sort of deal. Yes. And then the the religion I was a part of, Jehovah's Witnesses, it was like we were spending so much time, like week after week, you know, required to go knock on doors, oh right? Oh gosh, yeah. To try to you know convert people. Yeah. Um, and while we're doing that, you know, we have all these people in our own congregation, you know, who are you know, supposed to be our brothers and sisters, you know, who we we love, and yeah, and they're neglected and they're downtrodden and stuff, and. The thing that really got to me, I mean really got to me, was um, within this religion I was a part of, there was this belief that the end's going to come, you know, in any day now, the Great Tribulation, it's all around the corner. Right. It's kind of that mentality. And there was this, this elderly widow, she was over 90, and we were taking her to the meetings, and, and we went out to lunch, and she says, you know, do you think the congregation's going to take care of me during the Great Tribulation? Wow. And that really just, it got to me, and I started looking around and seeing more and more cases that were like that, and yeah. it just was like, what am I doing yeah. going and knocking on these doors? The people don't want me here. Yeah. This is, you know, this is pointless. Most of the time, people aren't even home. Yeah. Most of the time, we're hanging out at the donut shop. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what What are we doing when, when everybody... You know, inside, they're supposed to be our brothers and sisters, just seems so neglected. Yeah. And so it was a really tough time for me because while I'm like really growing to love the congregation in this whole new way, I'm like my views on this whole religious thing are just spinning totally out of control. Right. And far away from that. And like in a religion that's very high control, like, right. You don't think anything differently. Right. Yeah. If you do, you're an apostate, which is the worst sin anybody can commit. Yeah. So that was a really, you know, tough time, but it was also a really cool time of like just personal growth in, in so many ways. I don't regret it for a minute. Yeah, that's good, man. I, 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 I've had a very similar experience, and I can totally relate. And it's very freeing. I think the big thing was I realized that um, I – was doing everything the Pharisees were doing instead of everything that Christ was commanding the disciples to do. <laughs> and I just had to take a step back. So I'm totally there with you. Let's, let's talk about, um, you said you just had been healed of asthma, uh, over the last few years. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, um, one of those things I think that came from that time period of me just saying, Hey, I'm going to I'm going to believe. <laughs> right. If it says this happened, I don't see why it shouldn't happen today sort of thing. Yeah. And so I'd suffered from from asthma from childhood. I mean, 
as early as I can remember, I can remember events of me just not being able to pull breath sort of thing. And then later on in life, I discovered these uh, primatine mist inhalers right. that you used to be able to get. Um, like that kid in the Goonies keeps <laughs> dragging on one. That was me. It was like if I didn't have it with me, I would go into this major asthma fit and I would just drain them. I was using them more than anybody should have. Right. Because um, there's like it races your heart too. And so, yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was it was it was something you know I thought I had to live with, and then. Um, then suddenly I didn't have the symptoms anymore, sort of thing. Suddenly I didn't wow. need to have the inhalers, now, sort the, of thing. Was there a, the, the kind of the weird? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Sorry. Um, I was going to say, was there like a where you prayed, or did you cry out to God, or was there just like it just disappeared? It was more like that. Um, now I did have another incident where. Um, I had a friend who was praying, and she had her hand on my back, and I have like this weird curvature of the spine that would right. give me like all this pain, sort of thing. Right. Now that was more of a direct kind of like traditional, you know, laying on hands type, right? Type scenario um, where that happened, and I didn't have that pain anymore. Uh, what was weird? The asthma thing. I went through a huge period of time when I didn't have the symptoms anymore at all didn't need medicine and then I went through a period of time when I had all the symptoms back Wow! <laughs> and now I'm back in another period of time when I don't have symptoms anymore and I haven't had them for over a year now Wow! so wow. it's just kind of um, I don't know I don't claim to have the answers for any of this um, you know yeah yeah I well just, I think that's I could just talk about what's what happened and you yeah. know it is what it is I think that's extremely important, and I think that you've learned it, I've learned it as well, is that the worst thing we can do is to claim that we know we have an answer to any of this. You know, uh, you see that in religion quite a bit, that, uh, like, the religion tends to claim to have the answers to everything, you know, and... Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting you say that, because that, I can recognize that from my personal experience back when I was in this um, this religious cult I felt like I had the answer to everything right. in fact you know when when they train you to go door to door like we did they train you to have the answer for everything yep because you know? if somebody oh. wants to know can a Christian be cremated you've got to be able to jump in there <laughs> and say well according to the book of Acts or whatever sure um, whatever you just yeah. had to know the answer to everything but as i started reading the bible and going back to the source and stuff i found that i began to have more questions than than i had answers to anything but you um, know it's it's freeing to be able to question it's freeing to just to have the the ability to have questions that's that's what's so great about truth is that you'll never get to the bottom of truth you're just always finding out finding out truth and so there's always room for questioning. There's always room for exploration. You know, which religion says, hey, there's no room for it because here's all the answers. Oh, man, this was all decided in 325 AD, don't you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you were also telling me about some, uh, you, you had like a, a premonition dream as well, correct? 
Yeah, that was a weird one. Um, yeah, I had a, that one. I had a dream where um, I was at a religious building. We call them the Kingdom Hall, and there was a funeral service going on, and it was for my childhood friend, and. I remember that I was looking into his his coffin and I noticed that he wasn't actually dead. You know, he was alive. It was kind of very much like a was it Huckleberry Finn, right? Um, with a fake funeral, he's like, I want to see, you know, what people would think if I was gone or something like that, right? And it was really weird because I hadn't been in this guy's life or um, he had moved away like ten years earlier, and. When I say childhood friends, I'm talking like six, seven, eight years old. It was when we actually were around each other. And so I started asking around because, you know, we were all in the same religion and there were some people that saw contact. I said, oh, you know, how, I had this weird dream. How is he? And, and they're, oh, yeah, no, he's living up in New York. Wife, kids. Oh, okay. So I just kind of like dismissed it, right? And right. then. Then it was within a couple of weeks that it was found out that he'd committed suicide. Wow. And that messed me up because, you know, it was kind of like unmistakable. Yeah. You know, the whole scenario. But then I was like, oh, I felt, I had this guilt for a long time. Like, oh, should I have done something? Was I supposed to do something, you know? Right. Other than make some casual inquiry, you know, should I have called him, try to look him up sort of deal. So that really kind of like, um, you know, I was, I went through, I went through a real phase where like, you know, I'm coming out of this, like this totally indoctrinated mentality mm-hmm. and then going through this, this time period where I was like, okay, I'm just going to believe. And then, you know, I'm getting the, the tongues and the premonitions and the, you know, the dreams and all those sort of things. And it's, right. it's all happening in the healings and. And I don't know what to do about it because it's like so just far off, as real far off the map from anything that I was ever brought up to believe. You know, my whole world was like really shaken. And then kind of coming through that whole thing and, and leveling out yeah. over the years. And then like now I can kind of look back and get some perspective on that, even though, you know, I don't really can claim to say, hey, I know all about why all this happened and, and how it happened, but I know it did. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, uh, the Bible speaks about how we we see through a glass darkly, you know, and um, it's interesting because sometimes there's been times where, you, you, you know, I've gotten some sort of a premonition or some sort of a word or, and, and, and it it just seemed to line up right where I acted on it, and everything worked. And then there's times where I've had a feeling or a gut feeling or something, and it's just I some I'm just stupid, you know. I just totally oblivious. Like oh, you see later, you're like wow, that was God speaking to me. I t- and I totally like missed something that I you know maybe could have done. But in the in the end. We're all just like children that are just groping around in the dark, you know. And and every once in a while, we might be lucky enough to, to you know, like hear something from God and recognize it's God. But but really, it just seems like so random chance that we even are able to identify. Um, so it's you know, if God's doing something in our lives, you know, 
in, in that perspective. So, I mean, I'm sure you've already dealt with this, but man, never beat yourself up over something like that. I mean, that's... I don't know if anybody would have been able to to handle it correctly, you know? Right. I mean, I, you know, I don't... I don't... At the time, I felt really, you know, bad over it, but sure. now it's like I said, this is all kind of like leveled out for me. Sure. But yep. I'm, well, you know, I'm I grew up in a in a uh, with my faith. Um, when I was young, I was in Catholic church, but then when I came to Jesus, essentially in my twenties, I grew up in a um, non-denominational, Holy Ghost-filled, uh, you know, sort of setting. So we believed in all that. And to an extreme, and of course, like you have, I've leveled out. I've realized, okay, you know, the, you know, I don't have to be totally crazy about this because I would be like always trying to hear from God, always trying to give words, and and when you do that sort of thing, then you miss you you do all sorts of destruction to people's lives. You're like, you know, giving these thus saith the Lord's that aren't even God at all. And um, well, the, the the trick is is like you have that kind of like pure connection, yeah. to whatever. But there's a lot of like emotionalism and everything else yes. that goes along on the outside. That is like I don't even know if like I get like something that's absolutely pure if I can even like say it and yes. not corrupt it in the very act of saying it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but like you said, there's there's been you know weird things that I got that was absolutely on the nose. I followed it. It worked out. Yeah. That sort of thing. But, you know, trying to distinguish that, that moment. <laughs> yeah. Trying to like, break it down into some sort of an art or a science is impossible. You know? Well, I mean, you're, you're an artist. I mean, right. you know, that creative, when you're in the creative zone, <laughs> you're, you're basically channeling from somewhere. Absolutely. And, you know, trying to put that on, you know, as accurately as possible and you know maybe you hit it or maybe you don't sort of thing when i when i write especially in my novels it's not that far off when i'm when i'm really when it's really good it's, it's not coming from me sort of thing yeah yeah absolutely but, and but then you the have times, this other framework that kind of comes on it sometimes and you know maybe twists it or whatever yeah 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 well in many of the times um well what i was thinking about was you know how jesus said to to come to him like a little child. And I think, you know, that's this idea of not having any preconceived notions, you know, just trying to come to daddy, you know. And that is a really tough thing to do the older you get, the more uh, jaded you are and <laughs> the more life experience you have and the more you think you can figure this out, you know, and so on. Yeah, man. It's one of the reasons why I'm kind of glad my past was so indoctrinated. Right. Because, like, coming out of that framework, it makes, like, I could start from ground zero as an adult. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) And and totally try to, like, rebuild it. And it was, it's still shaky and messy and and crazy sometimes. But, yeah, deprogramming is, oh, man, it takes. It's, I mean, it's been six, five years, I guess, for me, something like that. And I'm still constantly deprogramming myself, you know. Um, it's, it's almost like it probably takes a good decade or longer, you know. 
So, yeah, it's like a constant um, work in progress, but it's really great once you start down this path, yes. of, like just deconstructing your yep. whole paradigm and absolutely creatively, if nothing else. Absolutely, definitely. So. Let's talk about some of the projects you're working on. You said you have a book coming out called Happiness Next Exit. Yeah, that's coming out August 24th. Okay. And that a book's an interesting one for me. Um, I'd written a, a book called Paradise Earth Day Zero, which is basically the sum of the apocalyptic beliefs that I was subjected to. And it's a really, really dark, dark book and just mad and so I I'd got done writing that and I was like I wanted to kind of balance that out and write something happy right and not not necessarily just to publish it but just to do it you know as like a creative exercise right so me and my friend were talking joking around about doing a, a Christian romance and we just kept riffing on this thing and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to write it. I used to do a National Novel Writing Month where you had to write a book during the month of November. And because you have to write a novel during a month, they're never particularly that good. So right. it's like kind of a way for me to like not be the the artist and just kick back and just, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a Christian romance. Right. <laughs> that would be something I would never do. <laughs> sort of deal. <laughs> So I wrote this thing, and I don't know, as I guess maybe typically happens for me, in the middle of it, stop being so, you know, just joking around. It, you know, this, the characters start talking, and the book started talking, and it all started coming together. And basically, it's set in the 1990s, and it's about a, um, a young Jehovah's Witness girl who's kind of like in one of these country congregations that are very kind of like small, um, small and enclosed and all that sort of thing. And her basically going through everything that I personally went through <laughs> right? when I, when I started learning, um, about Jesus, the actual Jesus right. and, and, and the lessons that I was learning about forgiveness and love and that sort of thing. And just being kind. <laughs> right. And because like, you know, paradise earth was so dark. I wanted to do something that I guess, paid tribute to that particular time in my life that was actually pretty nice where I was discovering all these things. And yeah, so I wrote this story and it's, it, it's, it's good. It's a story about love. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to market it. <laughs> now, <laughs> but, what, what publisher is it coming out through? Are you self-publishing? Uh, it's coming out through Curiosity Quills Press. Okay. And yeah, they, um, they liked it and other people liked it. So they're going to publish it. Nice. And like I said, I didn't. I'm, I never wanted to like set out to be like a Nicholas Sparks kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> but this book's good, um, and it. I don't know. There, there's some magic going on there, and it's. I hope people. I hope it resonates with people, and they they kind of get where I'm going. But it, you know, it's basically just kind of a ode to a time period of my life, which was a little confusing, but a little awesome. You know, a lot awesome. I think I think a lot of people will connect with that because I see a whole generation that is disillusioned with religion, right? And um, right. you have a lot of them that are kind of like there's a whole new atheist movement, but I also see a lot that say, you know, I don't I don't like religion, but it doesn't mean I'm I don't believe in God. 
you know, that doesn't believe I don't want to still uh, follow Christ. And so uh, I think this would totally resonate with this whole new generation. I think it, it's a whole awakening, you know, all over the world, really, of um, people that are really coming out of uh, cult situations, you know. So that's, that's good stuff, man. Also, yeah, I... Oh, I want to do, yeah, like I said, I just want to do, um, put something out there that was kind of nice for a change, but yeah. I'm back here in a, I'm working on the sequel to Paradise Earth, so for people who have been waiting, I apologize while I made comics and did other things. Right. I'm currently writing it, and it's as dismal, well, actually it's worse than the, <laughs> than the first, so if you're into like really, really dark, metaphysical, apocalyptic um, literature, nice. Paradise Earth, uh, Week one is is in the works and it's it's dreadful. Now, <laughs> now who's putting that one out? That's also Curiosity Quills. Okay. They they've been good to me. They they yeah. published they published my first book, Paradise Earth Day Zero, and it was one of those chance things that kind of worked out. And they've kind of gone from this, um, you know, this little small press publisher, and they've they've got a lot of cool people that are write a lot better than me now. <laughs> And they're they're doing they're doing good things, so it's kind of been cool to grow along with them, and they've always treated me well. So um, I'm sticking with them for the series. Well, speaking of which, you know, Stash Com, uh, Stash Publishing has really seemed to grow over the last couple of years, um, and you seem to be right in the midst of that. You know, um, I think there was an anthology y'all put out a couple of years ago that had a lot of out of the blue. Did y'all put out out of the blue? Yeah, that came out um, last. Um, well, the digital came out on the thirty first of October for Halloween, and and the print came out I think in November. Yeah, that was um, that was really cool to to be a part of that project. Um, there was a lot of great people that submitted. Um, it was basically orphaned um, shorts that they had, you know, right. four and six eight page comics, and the editor um, Marta Tenricolu. And, and her team, they put it all together, and we had this element in all of them that was a little strange, a little weird, so we came up with the, the concept of Out of the Blue and put out the uh, the trade anthology. It's about 100 pages, but what was really cool about it was that the uh, the participants wanted to, um, you know, donate, you know, the proceeds from it, so we checked it out, and we found the Comic Book Project, which is like this child literacy organization Nice. And they go into like um, disadvantaged neighborhoods or school systems and teach kids literacy and creativity by helping them make their own comic books. That's super awesome. That is so cool. And, and when we talk about Stash, um, Stash is really like a bunch of people that hadn't made comics before. Like one who hadn't even been in a comic book shop. It was just like an artist <laughs> nice. sort of guy. Right. Came in and was like, "We're learning how to do this." And I still remember the day, you know, that we got our first. Um, we did a little kind of like year in review anthology sort of thing, and we got them back. And you had this printed comic in your hand. Oh yeah. I mean, do you remember the first time you had a printed Absolutely. something you did in your hand? Yes. So I just th- I just think about these kids um, who are getting you know their the comic that they designed and wrote, and it's printed and it's in their hands, and. I I guarantee like the next you know big creators writers and artists are probably going to come from this bunch. Yeah, that's awesome. So we just did the um, the editors wanted to do it again, so we're doing one that's going to be like strictly horror themed. We're nice. going to tighten it up a little bit. 
and we just did the submissions for that. I think they got about a 300 pages worth of submissions. Wow. We got to whittle down to Jeez. like 125, which is going to be tough. <laughs> but, I mean, ultimately, it's going to be a really cool book. Um, Claire Connolly, I don't know if you know her. She's oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, right? She did the um, the cover of the first one. She's coming back, and we've already seen the rough draft of the second one. It's going to be, like, epic. <laughs> so that's going to be also coming out um, October 31st. We're pushing to have, like, the print nice. and the digital out October 31st. And it, once again, we're going to kick the money back to um, the comic book project because, yeah, why not? That's cool. Yeah, that's super awesome. Okay, so last thing, uh, you said you had a Kickstarter uh, going right now, correct? Yeah, um, that's another interesting project that I'm doing. I'm I'm the kind of guy who I go to the comic book um, shops and, and look at the shelf and never really see anything I like, but I love comics. Right. And so I'm, I'm same Stash, here. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, here's, here's the, new, the 10 new Batmans for the week. <laughs> yep. You know? I love Batman, but yeah. Oh, I know. You know, I always compare it to when I used to go in the video store uh, as a kid, and it was just lined with bad action movies and bikini-clad yeah. films, and they were, they were just like nothing I wanted to see, you know. Uh, so it's and very like, similar. One of the cool things about, like, novels is, like, there's there's niche publishers for every kind of novel you could ever want to read. Right. But in comics, we have this like small handful, right? And images right. doing cool things, yeah. But they're they're one publisher, and what can, how much can they do, and how much yeah. can they take a chance on, right. that sort of thing. So with Stash, I mean, me because I'm more involved with the, you know, doing the project uh, production and things like that. I'm always looking for these projects that are a little out there, a little different, because I'm like a novelist that decided. Like I decided to do a, a Christian romance, I decided to try to write a comic right. and loved loved it. I was like, "Oh, this is great!" <laughs> so, I'm I'm looking for people who are like good, strong writers and and people that are kind of like outside the industry, right? And like saying, "Okay, hey, you want to make a comic?" And one of these people that I came across was Seth Ferrante, who he just served a 21 year prison sentence as a LSD. Um, kingpin is what they charged him with. Wow. Uh, yeah, he was. Um, he was just this uh, this young kid who got in over his head, and ended up, you know, being made an example of in the war on drugs, and and got a twenty five year sentence. Jeez. But I mean, that's kind of like interesting that part of his story, and it was like covered in Rolling Stone and all that. But what to me was more interesting is what he did, is that when he was in prison. Um, he went out and got his master's degree, and he started writing for places like Vice and Don wow. Diva and, and The Fix from inside and telling these prison stories. And he was, like, in prison at the same time that hip-hop is going through this evolution and, and becoming all gangster and stuff. And the artists are rapping about these street legends who Seth is locked up with. Right. And so he's able to talk to these guys you know, get their stories and stuff, and he's writing about it. And he goes on not just to write, like, articles for magazines, but also to do books. Wow. So he did seven books while – he published seven books while he was in prison. And, like, me on the outside knowing how hard it is to publish a book, and you did seven <laughs> while you were in. Yeah. This, this guy's phenomenal. But one of his books was called The Supreme Team. It's called um, 
the Supreme Team, The Birth of Crack and Hip Hop. And it shows like in 1984, uh, this, this gang in Jamaica, Queens called the Supreme Team. They were led by this guy named Kenneth Supreme McGriff. Um, they got involved first in heroin, but then it went to crack. And how these guys were paying for the, the up-and-coming hip-hop artists who didn't have records out. You know, they couldn't get booked in a club, but these drug dealers like Supreme would pay them $1,000 a night to come right. perform. Right. Do these outdoor... And kind of they nurtured um, these, these artists. And then later on in life, when, when hip-hop matures, it goes back to the source. And now they're rapping about the guys, rapping about the Supreme team, people like 50 Cent right. and stuff. And then after that, how it just the, – the two scenes, the, the, the hip-hop and the, the street gangs, they just kind of like – they just get all intermixed. I don't even know how to say it. Where like Supreme sure. puts a hit evidently on 50 Cent, or, <laughs> which alleged, and it's just – it's mad. Uh, it's it's this larger than life tale, even though it's rooted in like real life, right? So I said, Seth, have you wanted to do a comic before? And he's like, Yeah, I wanted to, but I couldn't get paper in prison. That's why all the guys do tattoos. You know, they can draw on skin. <laughs> <laughs> so we we get out. And we I said, Well, here, write a script, and I sent him one of mine, and like showing him the script and what it looks like as a comic. And he put it together, and he sent me his version of it, and I I did a little bit of a tweak to it, you know, to make it work as a comic. But he, you know, he had it, and he nailed this this story, and and it's so cool because his the the language pops, it's real, you know. Because again, he was locked up with the guys he's telling the story about, you know. So he's he's telling it like it is, and it's it's really kind of a cool project. And I'm sorry to go on a diatribe about it because it's really. Oh man, that it's is really... like so fascinating, and it's what comics really are lacking are these kind of stories, you know. Um, right. I mean, there's, there's, there are, you know, plenty of small little guys doing, you know, these kind of uh, more niche comics, but they need to be to the forefront more. You know, when you go to the movies, it's not all action movies, you know, and. Um, you know, when you go to the comic book store, it's mainly these action superhero books. But this is the kind of stuff that that shows that the medium is not just superheroes. That this is comics isn't a genre. Comics is an art form and a, a, a storytelling medium. That I mean, this sounds fascinating. I love it, man. I really want to check it out. And you said it's on Kickstarter right now. Yeah, we're funding through the end of the month on Kickstarter. I mean. What we're funding, we're funding a uh, the first chapter of the Supreme Team, right? Um, which is this um, graphic novel we're working on. But we're kind of like we're funding that, but we're also trying to um, fund a little money to do a whole line of street literature comics. And right, I can't announce the names yet, but sure. the people that we're working with are really big in urban fiction and street literature, and They've they've got like I went through the whole process with them of them writing their scripts and sending them to me and me kind of like, you know, just fixing it so the the right amount of panels per page. But you know, right. kind of like teaching them how to do comics. They're right. already great storytellers. They just don't know the technical aspects of it. Right. Sure. But man, these these new scripts that we've got are great, and we want to do more of these kind of stories. So I mean, if you give towards Supreme Team, you're going to get a great comic and you're going to love it. But you're also going to help us. 
um, kind of kickstart these these other um, street literature comics that we want to do with these really great talented storytellers. And if they just um, if they just go to Kickstarter and and search Supreme Team, they'll find it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just go on Kickstarter and look up Supreme Team, and yeah, it'll pop up. And for for the month, we're doing um, these little video segments that kind of like showcase. Uh, we already showcased artist Joe Wills. Uh, we've got like weekly videos coming up that are going to tell more about Seth's story about like how a guy in prison could you know, kind of rise above it and sure. start a very successful writing career, which are really kind of cool to hear him tell, tell his story right now on, I don't know when this is going to air, but right now on Reddit, um, he's doing an ask me anything and people are uh, asking him all sorts of questions about uh, prison life and sort of that sort of thing. So I'm really, ah, I'm really happy to be a part of like all this sort of thing. Yeah, we should I mean, have this. You don't know much. It, it excites me to like, do do these kind of projects that have never been done before. Yeah, absolutely. If you've got like a, a crazy comic project or whatever, let's talk. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, man. That's really like my heart as well. You know, um, movies, books, comics, music. For me, anything that's on the on the fringe is always fascinating, and it's always what I'm drawn towards because I'm just tired of seeing the same old stuff <laughs> all the time. Uh, yeah, this sounds great, man. Well, well, if you look back to like prior to like the, the 1950s, um, before the comic code came in, you had all the genres out there: horror, yep. romance, crime. Yeah. The pulp superhero, he was there. Right. But you had all these genres. Yeah. And then the comic code comes in, the self censorship comes in. The only thing that that lives is is the superhero, and that's cool if you like superheroes. Right. But it takes up until now that we start seeing horror coming in a little bit with uh, Kirkman and Walking Dead. You know, we start seeing crime coming in a little bit with uh, Brubaker and Phillips. Um, There's really cool romance stuff happening kind of in the indie scene, but not necessarily in the mainstream just yet. But it's like, man, we've got a long way to go as comic creators to, like, catch up to, like, Europe. Catch up to Japan. And to, like, show, like, I mean, I'm convinced you can tell anything with a comic book and make it interesting. Hey, you've got pictures. Why not? Absolutely. <laughs> so, I'm, it, I'm uh, all about Mike it. Mike Allred says it's the poor man's movie making. It, you know, it's basically what it is, man. It's basically like storyboards for a film. So you got, you've got the best of both worlds where you have the prose side of it. You also have the visual storytelling. It's, it's a beautiful medium that's highly underused. For what it could yeah, be you can used blow for. up the universe for the cost of ink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Well, listen. Uh, where can they find you online? Okay, um, I'm on Twitter at armathenia. That's M A T H E N I A. My website is www.anthonymathenia.com, and yeah, you can also check out. Um, Stash Publishing, which is S-T-A-C-H-E, stashpublishing.com, and Stash underscore comics on Twitter. Check us out. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, all right. One little thing that I saw, maybe you're not doing it anymore, but it looked like you had a travel writing blog. Do you still do that? Yeah. Um, it's interesting you should mention that. Yeah, I wrote for – I did some travel writing for vagobond.com, which is V-A-G-O, bond.com, and – I kind of documented a two-week road trip that I took 
all around nice. the, uh, the United States. And it was, uh, I really enjoyed travel writing and I've got like a backlog of things that I wanted to write about, but a lot of it has to do with my current transition. I, I've recently moved across country right. and all the events leading up to that, um, I'll probably even write about the supernatural events, so maybe we can come back on nice. and talk about that later. Absolutely, for sure. But um, yeah, there, there's a there's a supernatural reason that I don't talk about when people say, "Hey, why why'd you move across country?" <laughs> you you wouldn't understand. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and say nice. mountains. But yeah, I'm I'm getting ready to uh, get back on Vagobond.com with a whole new uh, series of travel articles. So. Yeah, that that's coming up within that's the uh, the month, hopefully. That's awesome. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for being on the show. And man, any projects you got coming up, or you want to talk about some more, uh, you know, stuff that's going on in your life, you know, any supernatural stuff going on in your life, man, you know, you're more than welcome to come back on. I'd love to have you back on. So. Yeah, awesome. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, Enjoyed man. It. Thanks so much. All right, guys. This was Anthony Mathena. Signing out. See you next time. All right, guys. That's all the time we have for the show today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can check us out online at uh, esotericbuffet.blogspot.com. You can check out my personal artwork at jobadon.blogspot.com. You can check out my music at thebandthatwouldndie.bandcamp.com. Uh, I'm going to leave you with a clip from the movie My Dinner with Andre. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Okay, yes. We are bored. We're all bored now. But has it ever occurred to you, Wally, that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may very well be a self-perpetuating, unconscious form of brainwashing created by a world totalitarian government based on money? And that all of this is much more dangerous than one thinks? And it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored is asleep and somebody who's asleep will not say no? See, I keep meeting these people. I mean... Uh, just a few days ago, I met this man whom I greatly admire. He's a Swedish physicist, Gustav Bjornstrand, and he told me that he no longer watches television, he doesn't read newspapers, and he doesn't read magazines. He's completely cut them out of his life because he really does feel that we're living in some kind of Orwellian nightmare now and that everything that you hear now contributes to turning you into a robot. And when I was at Findhorn, I met this extraordinary English tree expert, who had devoted his life to saving trees. Just got back from Washington, lobbying to save the redwoods. He's 84 years old. He always travels with a backpack because he never knows where he's going to be tomorrow. And when I met him at Findhorn, he said to me, where are you from? And I said, New York. He said, ah, New York. Yes, that's a very interesting place. Do you know a lot of New Yorkers who keep talking about the fact that they want to leave but never do? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, why do you think they don't leave? I gave him different banal theories. He said, oh, I don't think it's that way at all. He said, I think that New York is the new model for the new concentration camp, where the camp has been built by the inmates themselves, and the inmates are the guards, and they have this pride in this thing they've built. They've built their own prison, and so they exist in a state of schizophrenia, where they are both guards and prisoners, and as a result, they no longer have, having been lobotomized, the capacity to leave the prison they've made or to even see it as a prison. And then he went into his pocket and he took out a seed for a tree and he said, this is a pine tree. He put it in my hand and he said, escape before it's too late. See, actually for two or three years now, Chiquita and I have had this very unpleasant feeling that we really should get out.
Don't we really feel like Jews in Germany in the late 30s? Get out of here. Of course, the problem is where to go, because it seems quite obvious that the whole world is going in the same direction. See, I think it's quite possible that the 1960s represented the last burst of the human being before he was extinguished, and that this is the beginning of the rest of the future now, that from now on there'll simply be all these robots walking around, feeling nothing, thinking nothing, and there'll be nobody left almost to remind them that there once was a species called a human being, with feelings and thoughts, and that history and memory are right now being erased, and soon nobody will really remember that life existed on the planet.